Back up, please. Welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. This week, Aditya and I had a chance to talk to the editor multimedia of The Economist, Brendan Greeley. He began his career in the U.S. public radio. From 2005 to 2007, he developed and served as the blogger-in-chief of public radio show Open Source. He's also freelanced for the New York Times, its magazine, and the Wall Street Journal Europe. He's done quite a lot of interesting stuff in the new media, and he was born in Texas but doesn't quite call himself a Texan since he believes that he hasn't earned it. So without much ado, here's the conversation that we had with Brendan Greeley. So uh, let's start with talk with uh, two simple yes or no questions, Brendan, all right? Um, and this might surprise you, but let's see how it goes. Yes. Okay, your other question. May 25th, 2008 is going to be an important date for you. Yes. I see a marriage in that particular, on that particular date. Is that a yes or no? That is a yes. <laughs> okay. You propose to her in Denmark on... Probably the 29th of December, 2006. Wait, am I still saying yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I also found out her name. All these things have come from a simple Google search, and then I went on to another Web 2.0 site, which is Flickr, and all this information is out there available to the public. I am sitting in India out here just typing your name, and boom, I know all these important things. So how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, I'm a little disappointed that I didn't get the yes or no question. Uh, your fiance is blonde and gorgeous. Uh, and she is. <laughs> she is absolutely beautiful. We'll leave that one. You know, it's a good question. Um, I, I wish I had a good answer for you. I, I worry about that sometimes. I think we're uh, we're cautious about risk until a catastrophe comes. I used to work uh, in the reinsurance industry a long time ago. I was a copywriter. It's a strange truism in that industry that as long as a big risk hasn't a big loss event, as they call catastrophes, hasn't happened recently, reinsurance prices go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that you know all these sober financial analysts are basically doing a very non-sober thing, which is sort of forgetting that bad things happen. And I think, to be honest, I use all of these sites. There's an incredible utility to Flickr uh, that can't be matched by almost any other web service that I know of. And and I use them to share pictures with people, to let people I know know what's going on under the probably invalid assumption that uh, nobody could ever use it to take advantage of me. So I think it's probably a good question. I just haven't been burned before by somebody looking at all this private information. But I think I, I would probably be better served if I were a little more concerned about living my life less digitally or at least less open to the world. But but that's an occupational hazard for you, isn't it? It is. You know, it's also, uh, you know, it's important, particularly if you work in this world, if you want to be found by people. I'm also a conference monkey. I go to, you know, I, I, I worked as a consultant for a while. People have to see your footprint in this world. You can't you can't not exist in this world. You have to leave a trail of breadcrumbs behind you for people to find you and figure out what you've done. So I, I went to a conference put on by the, the Berkman Center at Harvard uh, got about three or four years ago. And some bloggers were disappointed that uh, most of the people invited to the conference were, were big media people. And I guess I counted as a big media person at that point. I was working for public radio. And um, so they put together a wiki project to write bios of all of the people who were attending the conference. 
and they got mine really, really wrong. They Googled me, and, they, and, he, and if they had just made a phone call, I mean, they could track down my mother, and she'll talk about me for hours. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's some reporting that's often missing when people discover things via Google. Well, also, economists did this cover story, I think, about Google. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, uh, Abhishek also got a chance to talk to uh, Andreas about it. And he said that there's no reason to be concerned about Google having so much power and all this information being available out there. I don't think we've seen the catastrophe yet that's going to awaken us to this danger. The things that Google offers are so convenient that I I think something bad's going to have to happen for us to really pick this up as a public issue. Uh, Andreas is a, uh, this is uh, Andreas Klute, the economist. Um, tech correspondent out in San Francisco, he's much more clued into these things than I am. So I'd hate to disagree with him about whether or not it's bad that Google has hold of your information. But again, you know, I, I use Gmail, and I pulled it all down into my laptop. I popped it out of their server, or so I thought, because I wanted it all local. I wanted to keep all my information on my own hard drive. And I realized recently, using their web service, that even if you pull a copy down, they keep a copy on their servers. So that makes me cautious. In fact, uh, I'm a little panicked now that we've had this conversation. I'm going to go and erase all digital <laughs> myself. Well, it's, it's not that, you know, you can't hide this information, but the default settings are to keep it open. Mm-hmm. I think it betrays something nice about human nature, don't you, that our default setting is trust? Even when we put ourselves in a very public place, I think that's not such a bad thing. I think maybe we need to be more cautious, but, but maybe that's certainly one of the nice things about the way the web works well is that um, you know it, it takes a long time for people to wrap their brains around open source coding, for example. But when they do, it's, it's kind of an amazing recognition to make that, that there is a system that provides incentives for people to work really hard to make good, valid code that you can take advantage of. I, I think that's, that's kind of beautiful in a way. I'd, I'd hate to kill that out of an overabundance of caution. I also read that you were at Radio Open Source. So what was your exact role out there? My job title, and I have a business card, my job title read Blogger-in-Chief. Uh-huh. Uh, because I, I kind of had to make that roll up. So the, the, the show itself was designed, sadly we have to talk about it in the past tense because uh, it uh, lost funding and went off the air in June. But it was designed to take advantage of the conversations that happen in the blogosphere uh, and work to produce radio in the same way that the blogosphere produces conversation. And the blogosphere is sort of very familiar with cutting and pasting, and it pulls in sources from all over and responds very quickly. And we wanted to design a radio show that took advantage of blog-type conversations to make good, listenable radio. So I built the blog, but I think that's a stupid computer trick. It's not hard to manipulate WordPress. More important was I developed the editorial standards and the practices for figuring out how to manage a community for a national media site. And figuring out how to get that community onto the air, figure out how to make radio that reflected what that community was interested in. Um, and, I, and we spent two years getting that wrong. That stuff is really, really hard to do well. And again, and I have the greatest appreciation for people who can build robust web services, but the real difficulty is the editorial question. How do you decide the rules by which your readers or your listeners are supposed to talk to each other? How do you decide the editorial standards by which you pick up content and build it into your own journalism? How do you train journalists who are used to calling sources up and interviewing them to read through their own forums, pull quotes, and then work them into their own journalism? You know, journalism is a, is a craft. It's something you have to learn over a series of years. It's like, you know, learning to be a carpenter in a way. So, Brendan, tell me, do you consider yourself more to be journalist or do you consider yourself to be a blogger? I don't know. You Googled me. <laughs> Well, I consider myself a journalist. 
I'm not crazy about the distinctions between bloggers and journalism. Uh, I think blogging is a tool. It can be wielded by a person. It can be wielded by an institution. It can be wielded by a government, as it often is now. It can be wielded by a company, and it can be wielded by, by a journalist. I am most interested in the way journalists can take the tools that blogging offers and turn it into useful journalism. Uh, you know, I, I was a journalist before I was a blogger, and uh, I sort of, I'm a forcibly converted techie. <laughs> I had to learn how to write basic PHP and, and how to manipulate HTML and CSS and all that stuff because I wanted to do something as a journalist and I didn't see the tools out there. So I had to learn how to manipulate the you know blogging tools that were freely available at the time it was movable type to do something that I wanted to do. You have people, they're commenting, they're disagreeing with what, they're, with what you're saying. You're reading through their comments. You're deciding which ones you want to elevate to the main blog and then you're responding in turn. This is not a computer process. It's not something that can be governed by a database. It has to be a brain, a human, reading through this stuff and making decisions. And it's that use of blogging as a journalist to produce arguments and to counter arguments and to actually come to some sort of interesting, readable conclusion that I think is the most interesting. Mm. Or was that supposed to be a yes or no question? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. You also mentioned, Brendan, that you, you go to a lot of conferences and uh -huh. I'm sure you, you must be meeting a lot of investors, a lot of venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. So if you could just help me out with one question that you know I've been mm -hmm. asking Abhishek is that um, we see right now are going crazy with their investments in the social networking site. Okay? Yeah. Hi-Fi Hi got something $15 million odd dollars, mm -hmm. Dad got $20 million. In fact, in India also, the market is heating up. Sequoia funded um, an Indian social networking site. Um, mm -hmm. They gave them $5 million. But mm -hmm. what, what baffles my mind is that I still have to come up with a way they are going to make money. It really isn't that evident. So why is there so much um, you know, frenzy with, um, and, and money going into this particular segment? Again, I know I keep using this phrase, but I, I think that um, you have to be wary of relying on stupid computer tricks. You think you're buying a database, but what you're really buying is a brand, and a brand is governed by how it is that you use that database, the social rules that you construct. Um, and these are choices that have to be made at a business or at an editorial level that can't be made at a technical level. Uh, so as to why... VCs are throwing away money. Uh, I don't know. You're, you're probably asking the wrong person. I have a background in public radio. You know, we we uh, you know we, we we have a terrible business model. We give away <laughs> our content. You know, we give away our content and then beg people to pay us back for it. But I, if I ran a huge media company, and it's the way I'm trying to contribute now at The Economist, I think that these skills can't be outsourced. Telling a story of writing well, of writing succinctly, of calling people up on the phone, of verifying facts, all these things haven't disappeared. Their utility is not gone because communities have sprung up. I just think that you need to develop these skills in-house or else whatever platform you invest in is going to be useless. What is your current role in The Economist? Your profile reads that you are the editor multimedia. Yep. So I was uh, brought on to try and figure out how to recreate The Economist in, in audio and video. That's cool. Uh, You're talking to the right person then. Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Because, because Abhishek has a very interesting observation about your podcast and I don't know if Abhishek will, can, can share that right now. Uh, I, I keep telling others that the podcasts on The Economist are informative but, but they're very editorial if you know what I mean. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to duck the question that I just started here, so I'm not responsible for anything yet. Um, I think 
I think that every media organization, when it first adopts a new medium, its first instinct is to take the old medium and just recreate it. Right. So if you if look at the first step for the New York Times when it started making podcasts was to hire actors to read out its columnists. That turns out to be kind of boring. Um, right. And I think that there's a there's a there's a role for that. Uh, I think that there's uh, it, it is very efficient. You can you could give uh, a number of actors a large amount of text. It doesn't require any editorial intervention. And uh, as you may know, the Economist now actually produces readings of the entire paper um, yes. so every week that's seven hours a week and there's utility to that if you are obsessed with just one topic and you want to track that and you want to listen to that topic every week on your jog that's not a bad way to do it so what i was brought on to do to help with is to figure out uh, the second and third steps of adapting to this new medium or at least new for the economist so the second step is usually you know journalists are really good at going out in the world and interviewing other people finding interesting people in the world and bringing them back in and figuring out how to tell their stories unfortunately when we move into the you know the second step and moving into a new medium is that we suddenly and we're all guilty of this we suddenly assume it's us we're the fascinating ones let's talk to each other Uh, that's not particularly interesting either I don't think um, and you know, and I'm guilty of this too. When I started a blog for a radio show two years ago, I, I realized relatively early that we had to stop writing about ourselves so much. Uh, I hate the phrase to open the kimono. It's a gross phrase because, like, if you open almost anyone's kimono, like what's underneath is really kind of gross and fleshy, and nobody really wants to. Nobody really wants to look at it. But I, I think that. I don't want to hear about the process of creating journalism. I want to hear more journalism that works in the new medium. And that's the third step. So what I'm working on now is is two things. One is trying to figure out what The Economist sounds like. We know what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, they've worked really hard at creating this iconic thing that stands out on the newsstand that has a, an extraordinarily strong global brand. So the question is, what does it sound like? What are, you know, as basic as what are the musical cues? What what music suggests economists? And then the, the other part is, how do you how do you take the concise, clear, direct writing that they're known for in prose and recreate that uh, in audio? I mean, I think it's the best way to look at my job description. The second half of that is to figure out how to draw traffic to that on the web. Our distribution medium for audio is not going to be broadcast, at least not initially. It's going to be on the web, and the game of drawing audience on the web is a very tricky one. You've got to get people to link back to you, which means that you have to behave nicely with bloggers. You know, you can't do the time-honored process of putting together a mail list of, of people and mailing them and saying, hey, we've got something new, come listen to it. you got to draw them into the conversation. you got to give them something to talk about, too, and you have to give them a role, actually, in what you're producing. So that, that's the other half of my job, is actually create something uh, that's worth linking back to on the Internet, that's worth driving traffic to. Wow. How was your normal day at the office, then? It must be pretty interesting. You must be the only man on the team to start with. I am. I am. I, I, don't, have, I don't have a department. I am my department. Um, I, you know, a normal day at the office is kind of weird right now. Uh, my, you know what my average day is right now? Uh, I've only been working here for a week, so it's very easy to run an average of seven. Um, it's uh, writing long-term strategy papers about what it is that I'm doing. It's about calling up music agencies to talk to composers. I'm writing a lot of long-term papers laying out what it is that I plan to do. There's, there's a lot of talking in my job right now, and there's not much doing. I'm looking forward to the doing. You've got the coolest job on The Economist then, to be talking to the composers and to get to know what tune would precede the podcast and all that. Don't tell anyone else. They'll be jealous.
Brendan, do you really think a podcasting as a business can stand on its own or is it always going to be part of what you are actually doing? For example, Economist, right? Mm-hmm. Its main thing is the, the magazine and mm-hmm. podcast is just an additional service, it's just a good-to-have mm-hmm. service. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not, I'm not completely satisfied with your question because... Nowadays, Aditi, I don't think uh, new media is good to have. You need to have it. I might share right. a difference of opinion there. Right, but right. But that's not your core business. I think the so, core business for a very long time will be the paper. The lion's share of the advertising for, for The Economist still goes to print. You know, the first part of your question, it's not crucial. You know, if, if The Economist didn't podcast right now, it wouldn't founder as a business. But it's an opportunity. You know, there's a distribution medium open to us that was not open to us before. Right. Uh, that's the difference, is that before you had to find a broadcast hole. It's very difficult to get somebody to agree to put you on an FM or AM broadcast channel somewhere for an hour or even for five minutes. But there is an incentive now that the distribution is up to us. All we have to do is, is agree to pay for bandwidth in figuring out how this medium works. So I've kind of ducked the second half of your question, which is, is there a business model for podcasting? You know, I don't know yet. Audio advertising has been neglected, at least in the U.S., for decades uh, because TV advertising was where the money was. So when these people move on to the web, advertising agencies, when they, you know, there's a structural problem. Their talent is all oriented around making money, figuring out how to make entertaining video ads. So they, when they move on to the web, they just shift that talent to the web, and they still haven't figured out how to advertise on audios. But I think that there are certain things that you can't do while you're watching TV. You can't drive a car while you're watching TV. You can't take a run while you're watching TV. There are certain things that only audio can do. Um, I think that certain conversations are, are boring in video. I don't want to watch two talking heads going right. at it. If they're going to talk, <laughs> I'm interested in hearing what they have to say. But I've got other stuff to do with my day than watch uh, as they sort of yell back and forth at each other on, on other side. You know, there's a, a service called bloggingheads.tv in the U.S. So it's just two people on Skype phone talking back and forth to each other with the, you know, with a video link. And it always kind of looks like the space shuttle talking to the space shuttle. <laughs> like They're like two guys and they've got these weird headsets and their headsets don't match and they're kind of like grainy and fuzzy and out of focus and sometimes it won't work. And it's kind of boring to look at. So I, I think that there's, you know, another part of my job is I've got to figure out, you know, what video is for the economists. We haven't talked about that at all, and we may run, you know, I think we've probably already run out of time, but audio has its own utility that can't be matched by video. And, and for me, my general rule in approaching this to the economist is if a story works in print, there's no reason to convert it to audio. If it works in audio, there's no reason to convert it to video. The only stuff to do in audio is what you can't do in print, and the only stuff to do in video is what can't be done otherwise. Stories that can only be captured if you can see what's going on. So there, there were a couple of companies like uh, and, and they still are around. I mean, you know, Portek is still around, but there have been reports that they aren't doing that well, which has cast a big shadow on can podcasting be done as a business. And uh, there, there's another, another example uh, that I can think of is Audio, you know, who wanted to give the power back to people to create mm-hmm. audio podcasts online. That didn't take off as well. So what is the right mix, actually? You know, is it is it amateurs creating good content or is it content coming from the professionals? I think you that's know? tricky. Um, if you look at podcasting, the major distributors of audio content very quickly swallowed up that market. It took a couple of months after the iPod, uh, excuse me, iTunes came along and right. sort of adapted itself for podcasting for the largest downloads to be companies that were already producing audio. You see it from the BBC, from NPR, from CNN. 
Uh, and I think that it's a structural question that only large companies who are well capitalized can spend the money on all the equipment it takes to, to edit something well, whereas to be a blogger, all you need is access to a computer. Right. Um, lots and lots of people can type, but there's a barrier to entry to podcast well because you have to learn Pro Tools or some editing software. And that takes a little while longer. A good mic makes a huge difference, and somebody's got to pay for that. Studio space, you know, you can't blog, you can't podcast from a Starbucks, or if you do, it'll sound like you're podcasting from a Starbucks. Even if it's a temporary studio space, you rigged up. Uh, but all of that is a capital cost, even on a very small scale. And it's just much more efficient for the large companies to jump in and do it. So if you ask what the business model is for podcasting, I'm all for amateur podcasting. Um, uh, I think, unfortunately, the advantage there has already tipped to the large media companies because they've got contacts with advertisers. So I think the business model is sadly, um, and I, you know, I, I, w I wish I had a better answer. I wish I, I wish I could had a way in which I could tell you how small-scale podcasters can make money or, or just. Uh, if I may, I don't I, know. Are you guys, how are you guys doing? Are you yeah. guys like, is, are you guys a viable business model? We, we thought that we would be making money out of advertising. Mm -hmm. But what is right now happening is that traditional houses are calling and just asking us to explain to them as to how it all works, you know, and yep. what is iTunes, how do we get onto iTunes, etc. Nice job, take advantage of the market. I, I think basically with a lot of these technologies, when you consult for larger companies, they are paying you, or rather you are charging them because you had free time at one point. You know, I, I to master Pro Tools, um, and well, I haven't mastered Pro Tools, but to learn Pro Tools mm -hmm. uh, and learn HTML and CSS and all the stuff that enabled me to, to work in public radio, I had to be unemployed for a while. And I was very conveniently unemployed until I kind of looked around and figured that I'd start a blog and then I liked sound, so I sort of learned how to manipulate a microphone and, and manipulate Pro Tools and then ultimately got a job. And what I got paid for was that time I spent being unemployed poking around with this stuff, figuring out how to use it. They're paying you for your, the free time you once had. How, how much time do we have, Abhishek? You want to ask me more about my marriage? <laughs> Are we invited? <laughs> Oh, man, you know what? You would think that people would know they're not allowed to ask, but would you believe like people actually ask to a wedding? Yeah. <laughs> it's awkward, but you know, people violate that rule. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Can you explain very briefly what do you have in mind as of tomorrow for The Economist in the new media frame? God, what do I have in mind? Um, go, go back, go back to your strategy papers. Oh, God, what do I have? I have a, I have a list of, I have a to-do list here. I'll just, I'll fax it over. Um, I think... Most significantly, I want to focus on making programs that are short and discreet. I think on the web, you need to do a good job of presenting a concise argument about a limited topic and then packaging it in a way so that people can react to it. So one of the things I'm trying to figure out how to do and figuring out how to look at what's going on in the magazine and figuring out one or two topics around which I can create a conversation. Not so you've got to download an entire week's worth of arguments, you know, something that's 15 minutes long with five different segments, uh, but something that's short, that's three minutes long with one segment so that you as a blogger, you as an internet dweller, you as a podcaster can figure out how to react to that one argument. I'm trying to figure out how to package things up so that bloggers can react to them 
And then I got to do the second part, which is um, playing nice with bloggers. I think I think the internet, in a lot of ways, is like a cocktail party. Um, if you walk into a cocktail party and you start asking people what it is they can do for you, you're not going to make a lot of friends, and nobody's going to do anything for you. You got to walk in and you got to make friends. You got to talk to people. You got to, you know, imply at least that you can do something for them, or even better, actually do something for them. And you'll develop the kind of trust with people that encourages them at some point to to link back to you. And you know, I think that we think that because it's on the internet, it's all a computer and it doesn't matter. But sitting on the other side of that computer, somewhere else in the world, is an actual person. You got to treat that person with the same respect that you would if you were meeting them at a cocktail party. So the second half of this is to figure out how it is that we bring bloggers and podcasters in to what we're doing so that we have something to offer back to them so that when we make content and we borrow from their ideas, we link back to them and so thus encouraging them to link to us. I, I really, I don't, I think that a lot of the PR, and this is a very dangerous statement to say in the media business, but um, not dangerous, I mean, it's at least a tricky statement to say uh-huh. in the media business. I think a lot of blogging well is PR. Um, you have to do those things in order for people to link back to you so that they download your program so that you can sell advertising on it. Hmm. You made that sound very simple, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I, I, in fact, I, I can just leave here. I'm going to move on to another magazine. I think we're done. <laughs> well, we wish you all the very best. My father bought me a, a, a subscription when I was in college, and when he found out that I was going to work here, he was over the moon. He didn't know what to do with himself. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Abhishek always keeps on referring to economist articles, etc., and I'm not a reader at all. Mm-hmm. But I have a one-hour commute. And just the other day, I asked him, do they have podcasts available? So, you know, I can listen to them, but I don't want to sit and read. So I, mm-hmm. I hope that you do something good and can uh, be useful to people like me. I would have, I would be happy to. And you know, the trick is to actually have read all the Economist articles you refer to in conversation. You know that, right? <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> See, that's that. That's the trick. Is that you always think that you read the article, but what actually happened is you kind of flipped by it while you were reading it on the couch, and and, and then you think that you've read it, but mm. that you can, yeah. Anyway, well, it was a pleasure talking uh, to both of you, um, and uh, you, you know, have a nice uh, wedding. Uh, thank you. I'll be sure to tell you absolutely everything that happened as well as the rest <laughs> of the world. All right. Okay. Talk to y'all later. Bye. Log on to www.theindicast.com and leave your comments there in the point blank section. Bye-bye.